The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. All right, the scripture reading from this morning comes from uh, Esther 4, 12 through 14, and also um, chapter 6, 1 through 6. All right. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than half of the other Jews? For if you... Um, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But if you and your father's, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether uh, you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In chapter six, one through six. On that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds and chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that how Mordecai had told that uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king, on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what dishonor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? This has been God's word. So we have a a theme to this, Esther, uh, life on mission. I was thinking about um, what the problem really centers on, and and it's the world's problem. It's not our problem or the Bible's problem. But if, if you read this book, having no spiritual reference, you would say they have a legislative problem in Susa, okay? Because they've got bad laws. They've got bad people governing them. So, so in the world of politics and government, how many, how many of us really care about the policies and laws that are being implemented at our state, local, and federal levels? And I'm going to give you the answer really quickly. Most of us couldn't give a rip. One way or another, it just doesn't matter. Uh, we kind of go numb when you hear that the government has passed a, a bill that's 2,000 pages long. Uh, in the USA, and its related territories, in January 1st of 2010, that year alone saw 40,627 new laws go into effect. You just kind of glaze over. You say, well, that's nice. We're done. Um, how many of those, how many people know how, what are the number of laws that we have in America? And the, and the answer is, I don't I don't think anyone can count that high, all right? Um, When the federal laws were codified in 1927, they fit into a single volume. Um, Today, the Internal Revenue Service, the code, first codified in 1874, contained, uh, today, contains more than 3.4 million words, and if you printed 60 lines per page, that's 7,500 pages of laws, 
Where does that leave us? There are 20,000 laws, some of you might be interested, 20,000 laws governing the use and ownership of guns. And there are a lot of crazy laws out there still. In Alabama, there's a law that says it's illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in a church. Okay? We got mustaches at Doxa, by the way. Be careful about some of this. Some of these things were already flirting with disaster here at Doxa. In Alaska, no one can put their pet dog on the roof of a car. All right? That sounds rational. I'm glad they didn't reference kids there. Uh, in Connecticut, it's, it's illegal to whistle outdoors. Maybe that was like a monopoly on police whistles back in the age. Um, in a small town in Delaware, it is illegal to whisper in church, and I will not make a reference to what denominations they were talking about. I'll just be quiet there. I'm going to get into trouble. This is being recorded. In, uh, in Florida, it is illegal for a hot dog vendor to dress provocatively. Now, I guess the question really becomes, we'll know it when we see it, right? That's oh, you can't sell hot dogs dressed like that. I don't know. That's all it said. In Columbus, Georgia, it is only legal to fly a model airplane as long as it's either over your land or you're adjacent to a morgue. I guess they're worried about killing somebody. If you're already dead, it doesn't matter to them. And I'm wondering now if it's been updated to cover drones personally. So in Indiana, it's only legal to throw a rock at a bird if it's in self-defense. So just if you're traveling west and, and these things come upon you. So, so the question is this, really. When, when does a law become too burdensome and oppressive, and what should be done about these unjust laws? So just a, just a thought to leave you hanging out there. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about the fact that, that, that God has a role for each one of us to play in the plan of God. You know, we're talking about a life on mission, and we're all called to play a role in this particular mission. Wherever God calls us, wherever God places us, there's a mission that we are called to participate in. Each one of us has a role to play in the plan of God. And that role, truthfully, if we're honest with ourselves, it involves real risks. So we pick up with last week's teaching from Randy. We were covering three elements of a calling. We looked at their story, their setting in their hands within the context of Mordecai and Esther. And then we compared it to our story, our setting in our hands, trying to draw a parallel. You know, it's interesting. Randy opened up, made some points about the book of Esther. And, and this is a good question. If you're new to Bible study, um, the question becomes, how did this book get into the Bible? It's the only book of the Bible that never even mentions the word God. So you kind of scratch your head going, wait a minute. Did it, is that really true? I went back. I didn't comb through the whole book looking for the word God. I just like typed in a Google search commentary. God mentioned in Esther and it said no. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. And Randy, of course. I have great trust and confidence in Randy. So we'll trust Randy and assume the book has no reference to the word God. So if that's the case, how relevant, how relevant is this to us today? I mean, truthfully, we're in 2016. This is 2,500 years old, this story. You're talking about kings, all these crazy people out there. Does it have any relevancy to us at all? And I want to give you, if you're new to docs, a, a, a kind of a policy we take concerning Scripture, looking at the Bible, looking at it as God's Word. And, and we take this view of 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 seriously. This passage tells us that God's Word 
Uh, all scripture, including the book of Esther, it doesn't say including in the book of Esther, by the way, there, but I'm just adding that, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so I tucked in the book of Esther because that applies to us. We, we take a view that the word of God is living and powerful. Hebrews 12, 4.12 tells us that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And finally, the, the, we come together to, and I love Hebrews 10.24, it says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, as is much more we see you the day approaching. So part of this gathering is to encourage, to equip, um, and, and to embolden, to strengthen our faith. And the question really is this, where does our faith come from? And Romans 10, 17 tells us exactly where faith comes from. And this is a big deal. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we believe, we have confidence, we stake our claim that when we open up scripture, that there is something that takes place that has a life-changing, faith-altering force that affects us in our spirit, in our mind, and in our actions. And so with that, looking at the book of Esther, I want to recap a little bit and then just kind of take us through from there. So from last week, we did the first three chapters of Esther, and we saw first how Esther was orphaned and raised by Uncle Mordecai. There was interesting, some, some commentary talked about him being her cousin. I was kind of scratching my head on that. And we know that she was a young woman. She was beautiful, it says, in form and figure. Uh, that Queen Vashti, who was the present queen um, in the beginning of the book, had dishonored King Xerxes and was removed, and how the king set out to find a new queen, and how Esther won the queen contest. And Mordecai um, uncovered a plot to have the king assassinated, and how he told Esther, Esther told the king, and the plot was thwarted. And that during all of the foregoing events, Esther never mentioned to the king that she was Jewish. There's the wicked plot um, by the king's second-in-command, Haman, who was angered because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And because of his bitterness, he convinces the king to issue an edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a certain date throughout the entire kingdom. And that, that, that edict is issued. And he convinces the king, actually, it's really amazing how corrupt this guy was. He, he convinces the king to do this by promising to pay into the king's treasury 10,000 talents of silver. And the edicts then issued throughout the entire kingdom in various regions in the people's respective languages. And that's, that's where we leave off last week, that on a date certain, that, that the Jews were fair game. And you could kill them and you could plunder them. So we pick up chapter 4 of Esther, the book of Esther, verses 1 through 3. And it says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning of the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so this word about what happened to Mordecai comes to Esther. And it's funny, 
you can draw conclusions, and I don't mean to make light of God's word ever, but you kind of scratch your head. Esther hears that Mordecai's out there in sackcloth and ashes, and she sends some clothes to him. Like, oh, you didn't wash ladies not doing the job, I guess? I don't know what the story is, but she sends clothes out to him. And Mordecai, um, the word goes back um, to give Esther this story about this edict. Esther receives it. And with that, there's also a request for Mordecai to approach the king. Um, but obviously, there's a problem. There's a law in the books that says that if, if you approach the king unsolicited and he doesn't extend his scepter to you, meaning granting his mercy or favor, that the offense of approaching the king in an unsolicited manner, is, the result is a death penalty. And it's interesting because Mordecai says you got to go talk to the king. And I feel relatively comfortable saying that type of a law Mordecai probably knew about. So in saying go see the king, he's hoping that maybe there's interaction and things are going on. But there's a possibility that if she's not solicited, uh, if if there's not a solicitation for the king to have her visit him, that there's, there's a real risk here. So we pick up uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. Um, Do not think yourself in the king's palace that you will escape any more from the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Mordecai sends a message back saying, you didn't get the memo. That if you don't talk to him, we're all going to die. You and me, we're going to die. And it's interesting because tucked into that phrase is the statement that relief will come to the Jews. But the bottom line is, we're going to die. And so at this point, what does Esther do? Does Esther complain about her cross and having to bear this? Does she question her calling? Does she ask God why the Jews seem so cursed? Does she become filled with anger uh, that she has such a demanding uncle? Uh, does now she curse God for making her queen? Think, you know, when tragedy strikes, when it all hits, how does she respond? And I'd ask this for us again. When adversity strikes us, especially um, when you're doing the right thing. You know, it's one thing to be doing something stupid, know it's stupid and get punished for it and everything goes to pieces. But it's another thing when we as believers are living out our faith and we're doing all the right things. And then a life is taken, and then an economic nightmare, you know, hits us. Then some sickness overtakes your household. And you're like, wait a minute. Do we complain then at that point when we have a cross to bear? Do we question God? Well, hey, listen, God, I'm doing all this for you. I mean, I've done that. There, I remember um, my second son had a bout of grand mal seizures. And i got to be honest. If you ever want to see something, the worst thing you can see without a lot of blood is a grand mal seizure, in my opinion. And it leaves you shaken. And I remember the thought, and it was a, it's an honest thought. God, I'm doing everything to try to live the right way for you. What's going on here? And you know, it's funny because the truth of that statement that I made was that I wasn't doing everything I should have. I'm a fallen, sinful, broken man, first of all. Let's be honest, Jonathan, about the memo you write to God. But I was still at a place where I'm saying, God, look what I'm doing for you. 
What do we do? Do we complain about our cross to bear? Do we question our calling? Do we present to God uh, all the wrong questions? Do we become filled with anger and self-pity that we have such demanding people around us? Do we curse God for making us sleep in the bed we have? Fascinating what Esther does here. She, 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 she mans up, and then I wrote my notes. She didn't man up. She womaned up, right? That's, she's a woman. She woman manned up. Uh, chapter 4, seven, uh, 15 through 17. Then Esther told them in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. And boy, that, that's unbelievable. You know, it's interesting. The fast wasn't just don't eat food. This is no eating or drinking for three days. This is a fast that, fast that brings you to the brink of death. Think about it. No water three days? Where are most of us? You're curled up in a little fetal position at that point. And the point was Esther said, okay, all my chips get pushed onto the table. There's, there's no chips left in my pocket or anywhere else. But before she does it, not whining or complaining, she simply says, I'm going to go before the Lord, and I want to make sure I get his attention. And not only that, I need everyone around me to go before the Lord and get my attention. And not only that, she says, everybody around my father, he goes and gets everyone and circles the wagons. What a great picture for us when a calamity hits, some adversities. I wonder, as the passage of Roe versus Wade, that if America had went into three days of, no fa of fasting from food and water for three straight days, and then think naturally here, because people don't want kids, and that's at the core of Roe versus Wade, that we set up a the churches all rallied together across the United States and set up centers for pregnant women, and to take any child that a woman never wants and to care for that woman all the way through her pregnancy? Would we be looking at 40 million children murdered in America in the last, what, 43 years? Those are realities that when you look at this scripture and you see how these guys rallied, you start to feel real small in how I respond to a corrupt, broken legislative system that could give nothing, couldn't give a rip about godliness and the value of human life, the way God values people. So we have a great template here. So what about Esther's? Uh, this, uh, first, request, uh, let me do this. Let's move on to chapter 5. We pick it up on the third day. And this is really pretty interesting, the opening words on the third day. A lot of stuff in the Bible happens on the third day, by the way, if you're, if you're new to this Christianity thing. Scripture reads, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, with her heart pounding out of her head. Does it say that in your Bible? My Bible said her heart was just banging away as she walked in there. You know, no, it doesn't say that, but it should as far as I'm concerned. You know, so all the chips are on the table. And she walks in there, and the king sees her, and she wins his favor. And then the king asks, what is your request? It should be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. 
Now, I'm a man, and I'm going to make the following remark. Stone me outside in the parking lot, but I have to say this. I bet the robe she was wearing was skin tight. That's just me personally. You know, half the kingdom, you've got to be looking really pretty good personally at that point. So it's just me. You know, it's, it's bizarre. When you read Scripture, this, this stuff comes out of left field. What is wrong with me is the next question. No, what is wrong with Randy and Dale for asking me to teach this passage? You see, that's really the better question to be asking this morning. I don't know where this comes from. So we find a beautiful woman here gifted not only in beauty with form and figure, but with smarts. And I'll give that credit once again to Mordecai. The impact of a godly parent on a child is profound. She just didn't show up here. You know, how many of us at that point, when Mordecai says, up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, how many of us would have gotten to the point and spilled the beans, asked for the edict to kill the Jews to be renounced, and for Haman to be chopped up and made into fish bait? How many of us would have done that? Right out, of, I mean, right out of the starting gate. Up to half the kingdom, let's get to business. What does Esther do? Verse 4, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther asked. She strings them along. You know, in the meantime, the balance of, of the entire people of, of, of all of the Jews' lives are hanging in the balance. And Esther says, step back. Exhale. So Esther conducts a feast. And in the middle of the feast, the king says, what is your wish? It shall be granted you again. Uh, what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther answers, my wish and my request is this. I have found favor in the sight of the king. And if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come to the feast I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. She strings them out. And the question becomes, why? Why? I'm going to keep moving. And then the narrative turns to Haman returning to his own home. Haman it's, this is unbelievable. We know from last week that as Mordecai would pass him in the, in the streets, that, that Haman was second in command, that people should bow and revere, and Haman liked the thought of uh, you trembling, shaking before him. And, and Mordecai had, had only one that he would bow a knee before, and that was God. And it got his goat. Haman is, is bent out of shape on this. So Haman gets home. And he has some boasting to do, so he gets his wife and his friends to gather all around him, and he tells them how important he is. Haman recounts to them the splendor of his riches. He recounts, which in the end will be taken and given to Mordecai. It's pretty amazing, unbelievable. He recounts to them the number of his sons. In chapter 9, verse 12, I'll give you a little future plug. They're all killed, 10 of his children. He recounts the promotions of which the king has honored him with, and he recounts that he's advanced above all the other officials and the servants of the king. And he even recounts in verse 12, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king for the feast she has prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. And, and you can never have everything you want. That's the problem in life. E even if you're a belligerent, godless turkey, you'll never find satisfaction. Here it is. We know this because what, Haman goes over everything he's got. Who could have more? And he's got this burr under his saddle called Mordecai. And then he says, but what, what about Mordecai, this belligerent Jew? 
And then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends say to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And with a wife and friends like these, I guess we don't need enemies. That's all I can conclude here. Haman wouldn't even wait for the day for the edict to come to pass that allows for the killing of the Jews. This is, this is a guy that is so impetuous. A cubit, just for your information, 17 to 20 inches, depending on what error and what government you're speaking to in history. So we're talking about a structure basically 75 feet high. The gallows in ordinary, we would hear gallows, we think, for hanging, but it, it's not what's intended, generally speaking. Hanging was not a common practice for Parisians. The Hebrew word translates gallows to simply signify wood, a tree, or a pole. So the intention, no doubt, was to crucify or impale Mordecai, uh, to put him on this cross 75 feet high, and obviously the highness would make it more cons conspicuous um, that M Mordecai might suffer greater um, shame or, or be more of a public spectacle. And the question is, is this really for us in life. How many, how many of us seek to build things that lead to our demise? And I'll say this for men, we want more, bigger, and better. We want wealth, we want recognition, we want fame, we want stature. And how many men, in and outside of the church, I'll say this, in and outside of the church, do we see that, that all collapse and fall in? Uh, I love Peter that it says, humble yourselves, that God in his due time may, may lift you up and exalt you. Because if I'm doing my own exaltation, I can tell you it's probably similar to a noose that I'm tightening around my neck. Um, so... Um, the chapter six, it opens up the night. The king goes to bed, can't sleep. Lacking Netflix, he turns to the book of Memorial Deeds or the Chronicles and comes to a story of how Mordecai had saved the king. And the king asked the question, what reward or honor was bestowed upon Mordecai? Now, historically, there was a well-settled principle in Parisian government. Um, there was something called royal benefactors. It would be something recorded in a book like this that would basically acknowledge those who've done great and mighty deeds, and, and then it would literally put them on like a rolling list to bless or acknowledge them in some way. And oftentimes, it would take months or years literally for that blessing or acknowledgement to come around. So, And it's interesting because it would have been written in poetry, these noble deeds and acts. So it literally would have been entertaining. Like if you can't sleep, we want to be entertained. We don't just stand here. He says, get me something that would entertain me. And that's this role of benefactors, this book of Chronicles. So, in, in, so you have this king who starts contemplating how to exalt Mordecai when Haman comes into the king's chamber to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he has just built. Speak about irony. We read in chapter 6, verse 6, no coincidence here, by the way. Just, just think about some of this. The irony just gets layered as far as I'm concerned. The king asked more, uh, uh, Haman, what should be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? You're like, no, I, can't, I, I cannot believe this. So in the sixth chapter and the sixth verse, uh, so Haman's response is, let's dress him up and let him play king for a day. And we're going to give him the king's coat. We're going to put a little crown on his head. We're going to give him the king's horse. And we're going to make the most noble man within the king's kingdom run ahead of him and say, behold, this is what the king does to those who honor him. Now, here's what's really kind of fascinating. This is not a traditional thing to honor somebody. 
This was complete. You've got a path that takes you down the road on how to honor people who do things right in the king's kingdom. And the minute he said, dress him up and let him play king, was taking him straight through the guardrail. Because it's the equivalent of saying, okay, I'm the king and I want to honor somebody. So why don't we get the guy I want to honor? You kill me. You kill me and take my robe, my crown, and my horse and let him trade him around by the king's second in command. It, it was the king's robe was meant for nobody but the king. The crown goes on nobody but the king. And Haman, in his delusional pomp, thinks of nothing but himself and how he can further exalt himself, even if it means crawling over the corpse of the king that he is called to honor. It's interesting here how even the Parisians knew that a real king can't believe, can't, you can't duplicate. You can't create an imposter. You, you, can't, you can't dress somebody up who's not a king and treat them like the king. And I think about us as Christians and how we supplant Christ the king ourselves in our hearts. So what Haman does here is really an abomination. A commentary said in, in, in going over this passage, oh, mortifying reverse of human fortune. Can't, Haman is ready to kill, wants Mordecai killed. And the king says, exalt, exalt him. So imagine what it would have been like for Haman to go home that day and tell his wife and friends about a day at the office. In, in chapter 6, verse 12, Mordecai returns home to the king's gate. So Mordecai is paraded around, gets this honor, and Haman hurries back to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and his friends everything that had happened. And then the wise men, these aren't wise men, by the way, that's a lie. But the wise men and his wife said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have, uh, let me back this up. If Mordecai, before whom, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him and will surely fall before him. It's like they read the writing off of the wall. I'm like, surprise, surprise. Um, you know, I got to be honest. Another one of these thoughts that come to my head, if I'm, Mordecai, or if I'm Haman going home, I would have torn the gallow down before I told my wife anything. I mean, this, this is madness to think that you'd go into your house with the gallows still hanging out in your front yard. Chop the thing up and burn it. And he does not. And obviously next week you'll find out what happens. And so I look at Haman, and, and, I, and my question is this. If we could see the fate of every unsaved lost sinner on their day of reckoning before God, would it change the way we treat these people? Like Haman. See, I, I've no, I have no, there's nothing in me that likes Haman at all. My initial thought when I encounter people in this world, and I do like Haman, I think just let them burn. Just let them burn. And that's a horrifying thought to think that that comes from my heart. Well, he's pompous, he's arrogant, he doesn't give rip, he hates God's people. He wants nothing to, to cause mayhem and horror and suffering and people who've done nothing to influence this guy. He's, he's misusing the power and authority as he governs the people. Let him burn. Let me ask a question. How different are all the lost godless people that we know from Haman at the end of the day? 
You know, Haman was simply a godless fool seeking everything in his own power to exalt and gratify himself. And if you look at the people outside of our circles who are spiraling off into an eternity of damnation apart from God's grace, how do we look upon them? Where's the love? Where's the grace? Where's the mercy that comes into our heart? And, and we can stop real quick and say, wait a minute. He's ruining everybody's life. This guy doesn't deserve grace or mercy. But what did Christ do on the cross for us? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It, it just shook me as I was soaking in this passage. Before being saved, how different am I from Haman? A godless, egotistical, prideful human being doing nothing but seeking to gratify myself at the expense of others. Do you know that palm reading and fortune telling is forbidden in Cedar Rapids, Iowa? I didn't know that. In Wichita, Kansas, it's illegal to say rude things on the phone. That's good. There's a law actually today that says you can't, if you get angry, hang the phone up before you start saying things. There, there's unlawful use of a telephone. It's a law. You get up to three years in jail here in South Carolina for that. Do not spew venom over the phone. Bad idea here. In Louisiana, you can be sentenced up to 10 years behind bars for stealing an alligator. Just note that as you trash through the bayou. Just a thought. Be careful about the road rage. It's illegal to use profanity on the highway in Maryland. In Missouri, yard sales are forbidden. That's why I don't live there, of course. In New York, cheating on your spouse is illegal. Now, that's a joke, right? Tell that. Is it Ashley Madison? Is it, you know, whoever that is? In New Jersey, it's illegal to wear a bulletproof vest while committing murder. So if you hate somebody and want to kill them, contemplate the extra punishment you'll get for wearing the vest. That's all I'm going to tell you. As a lawyer, that's my advice to you. Please, I'm a lawyer, actually. So just take that advice for what it's worth. So most of the time, we don't give a rip about the laws of the land at all. I'm going to give you a primer for next week. What do you do when there's an unjust law that's passed? You don't rescind it. You, you write a new one. So there's your, there's your plug for next week. So what do, what do we learn about these three chapters from Esther? So when a bad law comes into our homes, how do we respond? Do we complain about the politicians who passed it? Do we lament about the unjustness of the law? Do we try to change the political system? And I'm not saying we shouldn't at times. Bad law is passed. Or do we cover ourselves in ash and sackcloth, rally everybody around us, spend time alone with God, praying and fasting, waiting for the king of kings to issue his edict? What do we learn about the persons depicted in these three chapters? Remember, is this really relevant to us? Remember that every one of us has a plan, has a plan of God that we assume we're given a role to play. And that that role involves risk. Faith is not faith without risk. You're banking on something that is unseen, confident that what we're told will come to pass in the future. The essence of faith. You know, it wouldn't be faith if God didn't ask us to put all our chips on the table. What about Esther? We've seen Esther exalted and taken by Xerxes to be the queen, yet tonight she's called to risk it all, to approach the king without his call, to approach him and not extend his, to receive his favor would mean death. 
It's interesting that I find personally, and, and that with the people around me and in Scripture, that, that in our walk with the Lord, there seems to be a time or two in our lives where God says, will you put all your chips on the table? Will you risk it all, all of it for me? And I, there was a time in my life where I really felt called into ministry, and I went to God and I said, well, look, you know, I just spent seven years in, in higher education. I owe tens of thousands of dollars. You know, I'm a new lawyer trying to struggle, keep my head above the, same, uh, above the water. And I said, okay, God, I'll go, but would you first pay off my student note? I had a mortgage there, truthfully. And about 60 days later, I started asking myself this question. Do you think God's aware of your finances? Do you think he's aware of your finances? And I came to the plate that I just said, here I am, you got me. And I was called into another ministry within literally 90 days. And the question was, would I give up my career? The question was, was I willing to give up my career? See, Abraham wasn't asked to sacrifice his son. He was asked to be willing to sacrifice his son. And, and, and Esther is asked to be willing to give her life up. And this is not in Scripture, but I am confident that when, when the king extended the favor to her, Esther became a completely different believer. And I'm not saying she wasn't a, a believer that had confidence in God and would trust him. But there's a time and a period in our walk with the Lord where sometimes it feels like you're walking on ice and when you hear it crack, you wonder, will he really catch you? And then things happen in life, trials and tribulations, and you come to a place where you realize it doesn't matter anymore. You don't even look for the crack on the ice. You keep walking because you have a confidence that he's going to care and love and provide for you no matter what. And if he doesn't, your days are numbered. He'll bring you home. So what did we learn about Esther? You have a Proverbs 21 woman on your hands. I was thinking about docs. I can look around this place. I can look around at women. I can look around at women that I think Proverbs 21 women. And it blows me away that I see women like Esther in my midst. And I rejoice in that because the impact, the impact is as far-reaching for a Proverbs 21 woman as it is for Esther stepping forward here. You just don't see it. The character of Mordecai tells us we've got a role to play as men. Some days it's simply to be a father to the fatherless. Some days it's to look around and be aware of what's happening, and when an evil plan is hatched, we speak up. We have seen Mordecai in ashes and sackcloth, and we have seen him in the king's clothes, sitting upon the king's horse. That's a pretty extreme setup. Yet we know Mordecai was unwavering in his trust in the Lord's perfect plan. Those words that he spoke to Esther, do not think yourself that it is in the king's palace that we will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He had confidence that if his life passed, God's plan would not be thwarted in the least. And it's an interesting line. A lot of us take that, oh, for such a time as this. But, but what precedes it is an utter confidence that God's plan cannot be thwarted. And he banked on that. Mordecai knew the Jews would never be eradicated because God had a plan. Do we have that kind of confidence in God's plan when we step forward to serve? 
that the world may say it's all a lie, it's not going to work, and it may even look like, and it may not work, but it doesn't change our confidence that God's plan will come to pass. And when it became difficult, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He called upon God to give answers. He called upon the only person he knew to find solutions with regard to the problem he had. Can any of us as fathers fathom what it would have been like to consider sacrificing our child for the good of our church or community? That's what Mordecai was called to do here. It's interesting, these themes about a father being called to sacrifice his child for the good of the people. Talk about the cross. Haman lets us know that in man, apart from God, no good thing dwelleth in us. He's the picture of the man who exists apart from God's grace. He's unable to see beyond the nose on his face. This man tells us that we all have enough rope to hang ourselves, and on some days we can do a very good job of building not only the gallow, but in hanging ourselves with the very same rope. Haman is a picture of the man who spends his life exalting himself only come to ruin. There's your picture. And this blew me away in particular as I was coming down the home stretch just sitting here. There's a big picture here concerning the Jewish people as a distinct group. So what about this plot to eradicate the Jews by Haman? An evil plot to eradicate the Jews two and a half thousand years ago. Does this resonate? The Jewish people are a hated people. Then, now, and in the future. Nothing has changed in two and a half thousand years. And that's because the prince of this world, Satan, hates God's people and the nation of people through whom he's revealed himself. This was 2,500 years ago. It was true. What did Hitler do in World War II? A plot to eradicate the Jewish people. In November 2014, Iran's supreme leader said this. On Twitter, by the way, that Israel should be annihilated. You know, we don't hear Iran calling for the annihilation of Australia, Peru, or South Africa. Only Israel. Oh, and they didn't suspend his Twitter account because he was talking hateful things to people. Isn't that interesting? Talk about politically correct. What am I getting my goat? Uh, that drives me into a tree. Is there something bigger there going on about how this world treats the nation of Israel? And I just... Look at what's on the wall. I don't know what else to say. And for us as Christians, that, that same world is, is going to hate us. John 15, 19, 18, and 19 tells us, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If the world hates you as a Christian, just don't take it per Let Jesus take it personal that's how it should be taken. So in conclusion, in conclusion, we all have a role to play. If you're sitting here under, uh, under these words and you're saying, I have no role to play, I have no relationship with Christ. We are all called to account. And if you don't watch Netflix and you lay awake at night, Things will happen. And the question becomes this. If we're drawn before a holy God, do we know where we stand before that God? And i got to be honest with you. I can only tell you for me. I would need more alcohol to pour down my throat when those thoughts came. There's no way to quiet that voice. 
Because God's spirit has come into this world and to judge and convict and condemn the world. And apart from Christ, apart from what he did on a cross to reconcile sinful, broken man to a holy God, there is no solution. And we believe, we hold true, we bank on the fact that accepting Christ personally, saying, I've received what you have to offer me. I accept who you are. I will bank on the grace that God's word tells us about that redeems, renews, restores, and reinstates us in perfect relation to a holy God. Apart from that, we're doomed. That grace is here today. People will pray with you. You can pray in your seat. God, let me receive this grace. For the rest of us, are we responding to that call? Are we willing to risk it all? There's no half measure in the call of God. All the chips are none of the chips. And Esther's our perfect example. She was willing to give, to risk it all, to sacrifice, and to step out in faith for such a time as this. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Esther is relevant. We thank you that there's truths in your word uh, that apply to us every day we live. Lord, I pray that our hearts, that something is stirring within our hearts, that that there are places and times in the coming week where, where we may hear a still quiet voice, are you willing to risk? Whether it's money, our time, our reputation, um, our standing, something else. Are we willing to risk it? Father, I pray that we would be obedient, that you would be honored, and that your light, your voice, your name, your goodness would be proclaimed to a lost world. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.